We're doing a series about learning how to follow Jesus together because we fundamentally believe that God didn't just place us here and we just visited this church one Sunday and decided, hey, I'm going to be part of this church. It meets some of my needs. It's pretty good. Uh, Maybe that was how you came into it. But then Uh, what we fundamentally believe is that God has not just brought us together, but is actually sending us together to every place that we work, every place that we play, uh, all relationships, both near and far. Uh, It was really beautiful to hear uh, all of you sharing about what God is doing in your lives. I think one of the, the really basic, and this is not Uh, in my sermon today, but one of the basic pictures that we see of what it means to be a people sent by God, uh, you see in the book of Jeremiah when a whole bunch of people are scattered, uh, they've been taken captive and taken to Babylon, and God tells them that they should seek the good of the city that they've been put in, Uh, they should seek the good of it uh, in these ways, they should plant gardens, which I know a ton of you have planted gardens because of COVID. So maybe that's one little side bonus. Uh, you're supposed to buy houses and build houses, uh, which a lot of you have done as well. And you're supposed to have children uh, and, and birth them and care for the good of the city in all your relationships and all of your endeavors. So uh, we see that all of those things that happen are not just you living the American dream, uh, of you building capital or you being able to have enough deposit or, you know, to put down on a house, but really actually your faithfulness to seek out your identity in this city as someone that God has sent. We believe God sent us together. Uh, most recently, we've been talking about how Jesus changes everything, that if the gospel uh, is anything, it's about Jesus changing uh, everything. And we've, we've been talking about this diagram, the gospel prism, It's pretty cool. Uh, We talked about first how Jesus changes what we believe, how he fundamentally shifts what we think about the world, brokenness, uh, our rescue, our sin. Jesus fundamentally changes what we believe and our notions about the world. We also talk about how the gospel changes who we are, our identity, that he transforms us, our character, our souls. Uh, But it's not just about Jesus changing what we believe. That would be fantastic, that Jesus comes and rescues us. That would be a really good news. Uh, The gospel is not just good news that he changes the very fabric of our identity. That also alone would be really good news. But it's also that Jesus is transforming where we live, that he's changing the world around us. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. And we're going to be looking from Luke chapter 4, verse 14 to 21. So let me read that for us. It says this, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. And he was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet was, uh, Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he's appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. 
That is God's word. When he talks about the proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, uh, maybe you all know what that's like. Maybe you all went to City Seminary a few years ago and you remember. Nope. Uh, I'm sure you don't. What he's talking about is this thing in the Old Testament called Jubilee. Uh, You can read about it in Leviticus chapter 25. And what God had done is he had rescued the people out of bondage and oppression in Egypt. And then while they were in the desert, God formed them and fashioned them into a people. One of the ways he did that was by giving them symbols, uh, things to remember him by. Another thing that he did was creating festivals and things to celebrate. And as they celebrated those things, they remembered who God was and how he operated in their lives. He also gave them just rules and laws. Some of the laws were, you know, the basics, like the Ten Commandments about how we relate to God. Some of the laws were about how society was supposed to work and how justice was supposed to work. But in there, there's a whole bunch about rest and about how God is gonna send these people out on the grand mission that he has for them to bless the whole world, and at the center of that is a whole bunch of laws around rest. First, there was Sabbath, a weekly rest. One day a week, people would set aside their whole lives and they would simply pause. They would be with their families, they would enjoy creation, they would enjoy relationship with one another. No one went out to get water, no one went out to get food, they just relied on what God had already given them. And through that practice, they actually showed the rest of the world, God is a God who sustains and provides, as Sarah was talking about. He also gave them sabbaticals, that's another rest. It's a rest for a whole year. Every seven years, they just stopped working on any of those things. The land got rest, the agri- they didn't plant anything, they didn't turn the soil, they didn't do anything with the land. Uh, environmentalists and you know, agricultural scientists look into that practice and say, this is how a tiny country in the Middle East became so bountiful. Because they said, every seven years, we're not gonna overwork the land. I don't know if you knew that, but the soil can actually be overworked. They also didn't do anything with the animals except feed them. No animals were slaughtered. They didn't eat all of them. It was really kind of phenomenal, which is a whole other thing. But the people themselves, they took a year and they just rested and delighted in God. That was sabbatical. And then there's this thing, Jubilee. Every seven cycles of Sabbath, so I'm going to make it really easy, every 50 years, or once in a generation, what they were called to do was take not just a sabbatical rest, but they were, they were to sit around and wait for someone to play a trumpet. And the trumpet was called a jubil. That's where the word jubilee comes from. The jubil, that trumpet, uh, it was like a ram's horn that they would play in battle. So if you remember old school Bible stories about Jericho and the people marching around and then blowing their horn and the walls come tumbling down, it's that trumpet. It was to declare God's victory before they even faced battle. It was to declare that they were going to not just be victorious, but that peace was going to come through God's work. And so every 50 years, a a person would go up on a tall tower and he would play the jubil. But it wasn't for a battle. It was a sign that this moment had come up where all debts would be forgiven and all land that had been taken away would be given back. And all people who were in jail would be set free from jail. It was a time where all the land that had been mortgaged or indebted or sold would be brought back and restored to the original owners. Pretty phenomenal thing. Uh, See, part of what you need to understand about this is kind of how land worked 
in Israel. You didn't know you were going deep into some really funky stuff today. But uh, it's really important, and you're going to see later. Later, you're, you're going to have this big light bulb, and you're going to be like, oh, wow. Maybe. Uh, now I'm backtracking on that promise. But the way land worked is when they came out of the desert into the, the land of Israel, each family was given a piece of land. And that, it was kind of like redoing of the Garden of Eden, where God creates this beautiful garden where Adam and Eve can live and thrive, and they have everything that they need. And it even says that God placed them in the garden. So when the people of Israel are coming back into the land, God places each family just like that into a place where they can grow things, they can thrive, that that family will be known, they will know the land, they'll know the rivers, the creeks, all of it, and they will have peace. And that's how it worked. Everybody got the same amount of land, they got split up all over the place. But what would happen is, what if a family fell into some sort of destitute position, maybe through bad decisions like, Uh, They decided to plant things when they weren't supposed to plant, or they're just bad at being farmers, or maybe uh, some sort of tragedy would happen, and and the the family would have uh, some sort of disease, or be blind, or not being able to work really hard, or just bad weather and bad circumstances meant that the family didn't have enough to live off. Well, what they could do is they could then loan their land to someone else, and then they could work the land themselves and try to pay back that loan. But if they still sort of fell into more chaos uh, and bad situation, which happens in families, right? They would uh, then have the opportunity to full out sell their land and move elsewhere. And somebody else would own the land. And then, uh, as they're, you know, wandering around, often they would end up being people who beg on the street or people who steal bread and steal all sorts of things, end up in jail. All of that sort of things would come to fruition, Right? And what we think in our own system is like, man, that's really bad. Somebody should do something about that, right? Because what happens is 50 years later, 70 years later, 150 years later, you have people living out the circumstances of people generations before, or bad weather cycles generations before. They became dependent. They also became scattered. They became broken people. They became enslaved to debt. They were, some of them, imprisoned. Some were left to beg on the streets as blind people, as paralyzed people, as the sick. But then, you remember Jubilee, right? Every 50 years, there would be this point when the trumpet would sound. If you want to, you know, when we sing that song, and the trump shall resound, it's not talking about our president from before, it's talking about this Jubilee trumpet being declared that Jubilee was here, that those who are imprisoned would not be just set free from prison, but they would be taken back to the land of their fathers and grandmothers and grandfathers, and they would be placed back in that land, and they would have it all over again. They would have all of the same stuff that they were given in the very beginning, like being brought back to the very center of the garden where they would have everything that they would they could to thrive. They were able to not just walk out of jail or walk off the streets, but they could walk debt-free anywhere they went, to, went. The blind people, the sick people, they were brought also back to their land and where they were given everything. All of the stuff, they were given it back. They would be there forever, or at least for 50 more years. The Jubilee in the Bible, in Leviticus chapter 25, is about a release. It's about justice for the oppressed and the overthrow of the wicked. Because as you can see in this system, there was plenty of leeway for people to take advantage of families. 
and, and even rise up and have all sorts of wealth. And I'm not making any statements, just so you know, about modern-day billionaires or anything like that. I'm talking about the ancient Middle East. But it was ripe for all sorts of uh, wickedness from the rich and the bountiful. But the Jubilee was about a release of captives. It was also about return, being brought back to the place of thriving and peace. And ultimately, it was about restoration. See, the whole story of Exodus and the rescue for Egypt is about redemption, God buying people back into freedom. Jubilee was about restoring, giving people abundant life that they were made for, right? And so that's what Jubilee was all about. However, and scholars debate uh, this all the time, but there's no true evidence that the people of Israel ever did this once. Really? Yes. Some people say, surely they did, but there's no real evidence that they did. As a society, they forgot all about this whole system, or maybe they intentionally forgot all about it, and they just didn't do it, and it didn't happen. The only way it was kept in the consciousness of the people was prophets would say repeatedly, they would call upon the priests, they would call upon the kings to say, we must be faithful to this command. We must do a year of jubilee. But generation after generation, those kings and those priests would not respond to it. And then the prophets began to declare that one day a king would come, a servant would come, a priest would come who would do such a thing that he would make it to where Jubilee could not be ignored, and then there would be a full restoration and a rescue. That's what Isaiah was talking about that Jesus just read here. And the people began to look and long for that day, even as they became conquered by more and more nations and there was no one powerful enough to enact this sort of thing. They, the prophets kept saying, Jubilee is coming. And then Jesus, born you know, in a manger, growing up in a man, as a, into a man, going about healing people, setting people free from all of these things, teaching uh, every day all over the place. On one day, he comes into the synagogue in the town where he was born, and he stands up, and he opens the scroll to Isaiah, and he proclaims this, and I'm just going to read it again. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to proclaim jubilee. See, this moment is, uh, is more than just a guy who's giving a really good sermon at a time when people were really liking the way that this guy talked. What he was doing is he was proclaiming that this was finally going to happen. Jesus proclaims the year of jubilee, he, and it's both something that he talks about, but it's also something that he enacts. Because at the end, he's, he sits down and he says, in your hearing of this, it's accomplished and it's fulfilled. See, Jesus himself is the trumpet. He's, he is the jubil trumpet who's declaring, hey, it's time for the captives to be set free. It's time for the poor to be fed. It's time for the oppressed to walk uh, in thriving. But Jesus is also the king who orders it. The authority that he speaks with. And if you read on, the people were just astonished. They said, isn't that Joseph's kid? Who, who gave him the right to enact this sort of thing? 
But Jesus takes the posture of the king who can set about a decree where all broken things are mended. And then Jesus says that he's the servant who's going to bring it. What he, what he reads here is that he's saying that Spirit's appointed me, and I, and I don't just proclaim good news, but I actually bring about recovery of sight to the blind. He's not just talking a big talk. He's making a physical change in the world. Because that's the thing with Jesus and with Jubilee is that it's holistic. It's for every part, not of just us, but every part of society, every part of the world. And you can see this by what Jesus leaves behind. You know, you can see what kind of leader or kind of person someone is by just sort of the collateral damage left in the wake of that person, right? Like that's one of the ways to know who a person was. We call that legacy, right? Jesus' legacy was that there were physically blind people that he met every day that could see the light of day. There were spiritually blind people, though, that also saw the light of God for the first time. There were physically oppressed people, and Jesus walked among them and healed them and set them free. There were people who were spiritually oppressed, not chained up to tombs or anything like that, but spiritually oppressed, and they began to walk in complete grace. There were people who were poor and who were hungry, and in the wake, Jesus left them feasting and satisfied. There were also the spiritually poor who had just been beat down by life, and in in Jesus' wake, they were nourished by the bread of God, the bread of life. The hungry were satisfied with loaves and fishes. The spiritually hungry were overwhelmed by the blessedness of a life close to God. It's holistic, the restoration of Jesus. And it's not uh, just for us. It's for the nations. It's for the world. Jesus uh, cleverly uh, cuts parts of this out from the scroll of Isaiah. He doesn't read parts before and he doesn't read parts after that focuses just on the people of Isaiah. It's as if what, or people of Israel, it's as if he's saying, this isn't just for the people who were born uh, into the family of Abraham. This is now for everyone. It's for every woman. It's for every man. It's for every child. It's for every old person. It's for every African. It's for every Roman. It's for every prostitute. It's for every priest. It's for fundamentally the world, and there's no way to escape that just by looking at the way Jesus lived for others. And so that is the restoration and the power of the gospel through Jesus, and it's all through him, and it's core to the good news. This is not an added-on thing. Uh, This isn't a, man, it's so good that Jesus saves me and I get to go to heaven. Uh, And then he also is kind of dabbling in fixing the world. Like, that's good of Jesus. I'm glad he's, you know, throwing some stuff in there to try to make the world right. Maybe that teaches us that he's really good and we get to go to heaven. No, no, no. This is core to what Jesus does in the cross and in the resurrection. The cross and the resurrection is the unavoidable cost that God pays to restore the world. If you think about the, the, the physical like laws about Jubilee, it came at great cost, which is probably why it didn't happen. The king would probably have to give up a lot of his money to make it work. The king would have to do a lot of negotiating with the landowners to say, you actually have to give it back to the original people. 
It would take all political capital, it would take a ton of financial resource, and it could expose that king and those priests to losing everything. The cross and the resurrection shows us that Jesus says, I will pay all the cost to restore this world. I will do the whole thing. I will give myself, I will bleed, I will be broken, I will not even breathe again so that that cost can get paid. But also the cross and the resurrection is the unavoidable center of restoration as well. Because it's not just, hey, the, the jubilee is costly, but it also is abundantly uh, restorative. Because what Jesus does with all of that is he deals with the guilt and with the debt. How are we set free? It's not just that Jesus paid the cost, but he actually paid us out of debt. He defeats the powers of evil that oppresses. Apostle Paul says that he crushes it underneath his feet, puts all powers, all authorities, everything under his feet. Says that he destroys death. Why aren't we in the garden of thriving? Because of death. And Jesus defeats it through his life, his death, and his resurrection. He also removes all barriers of conflict between ethnic groups in his rising from the dead. He heals and he reconciles all creation. It's so telling that Mary, when she first sees Jesus risen from the, risen from the grave, she thinks he's a gardener walking in you know, the cool of the day. I mean, how powerful of, a, of an image is that? When, when she sees the risen king of the world, she thinks he must just be a person caring for this garden. I kind of imagine it suddenly blooming and being filled with light and peace and the birds chirping because Jesus not just sets humans free, he sets creation free too. Christopher Wright puts it this way. He says, ultimately... All that will be there in the new redeemed creation will be there because of the cross and resurrection. And conversely, all that will not be there, uh, suffering, tears, sin, sickness, oppression, corruption, decay, death, that stuff will not be there because they will have been defeated and destroyed by the cross. That is the length and the breadth and the height and the depth of God's idea of redemption. And this is exceedingly good news. What Christopher Wright, this Irish uh, professor and intellectual, is saying is that, that the fact is, is that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, all good things will be in, in the new heavens and the new earth, and all bad things will pass away, and that's how big God thinks about redemption. It's not just you and your soul. It's not just you and a new identity. It is about the cosmos being brought back into the way they were supposed to be. And so I bring this all up, not just because it's incredibly good news that should draw us to worship, but also deep implications for us to be a church that's centered around the good news of Jesus. A church that sees that Jesus changes the world and changes where we live has two kind of big uh, to-do lists. Are you ready for the two big things? One is, and this is going to be surprising, is lament. Christians are given this uh, bizarre perspective. 
Uh, because we, we come into this vision that Jesus has for humanity and the world and for other humans and the people that we love, and he, he captivates us with the world that is restored and humans that are relationally healed and people that are redeemed and where death falls away and life just comes up out of people. We have that vision for the world and a deep conviction that it's true while we live in a world that doesn't look like that at all. We live in a world and, we live, and we're reminded by it daily that death actually is a thing that happens. That relational brokenness is rampant. That the way that the world works, the way our city works, doesn't just fit all nice and neat together. And what the, the Bible declares that we do is that we're a people of lament. And lament means that we say what is true about the world and how it's not how God wants it to be. Lament is saying out loud the broken things that we see and feel and become aware of. And so I want us to take just a, a moment right now for us to think about our city, think about our world, and think about what parts need to be restored. What is broken that needs to be made new by the power of the gospel? And this is, we've already warmed up sharing, all right? So you share out loud. What are some of the things that you see that are broken that need to be restored? You? Physically? Or all? All? It's true. I've hung out with Matt. He also needs like a whole new insides, literal and outside. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, this totally the cycle of broken neighborhoods, broken families, homelessness, that vicious yeah. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. We don't see any productive value out of you anymore, and so you have no value. Yeah, which is, yeah, for, for those with handicaps, those with mental illness, the elderly, the children, yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah, the lie of no one is coming that creates all of this loneliness. Yeah, I think that that's why lament's so powerful because it, it brings us and it reminds us of the fact that no, people should be known and should know each other. So you're going to say... It's like intense greed. Spirit. Greed? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, the rich continually just like stack it up, build it up. Yeah. I think the brokenness of like people not knowing 
Mm. Yeah. And we know how it feels if somebody misrepresents us or says something that's not true about us. Like, but that's like Jesus on a million times scale. Absolutely, yeah. He's so broken that nobody actually knows who he is. Totally. Yeah, I might say. The world? Yeah, go big or go home, sweetheart. The world is so broken. Yeah. This week... I want to encourage you, the, the little devotional for this week is about practicing lament that we just kind of got warmed up doing. But I want you to, add, I just want to, if you haven't done any of the devotionals so far, that's cool. It doesn't hurt my feelings. But I want you to do this one. I just want to challenge you, encourage you to do it. Uh, because uh, lament is probably the most forgotten yet essential component of a life living on mission. Uh, it's essential because if we don't lament, because lament is taking these broken things and these things that we see before God. When we see those things before God, we, we invite ourselves into the solution. And we invite ourselves and say, God, I lay this before, the homelessness in the world before you. And who do we complain or who do we plead to and who do we say, God, make this well? It's God. If we don't practice lament, we think, hey, this homeless thing, the governor should fix it. Which, you know, maybe they should do some stuff. And maybe it, it calls us into that. But it's a completely different posture towards our city to have one of lament versus one of complaint to some other higher, other power, right? And so that's why I so want us to do this. Let's all take some time to lament because that's one of the implications of knowing that Jesus changes the world. The second thing is that we champion the holistic restoration of people and places. We believe that the whole of life is lived underneath Jesus, that Jesus is just as much involved in the affairs of society, uh, of the earth, of our economics, as the affairs of the heart. That's one of the implications of this aspect of the gospel. The realities on the ground, or in the living room, to take something from earlier in this study, right? Are themselves intricately bound to the things of the heavens. If there's anything that Jesus said to summarize this aspect of the gospel, is he continually said that the kingdom of heaven is on earth. And so Christians, church, family, what we do is we live as if heaven is touching this earth. The early Christians sought to uh, live out the truths, these essential truths, and the values of the kingdom within a kingdom that had no desire to do it. They were surrounded by an empire that didn't have any of the values that the kingdom of God has. And yet, that Christian community, the early churches, just chose to shape their whole lives around expressing these amazing truths about God in all of their affairs, and the way that they did business, and the way that they taught people, and the way they engaged in people. They saw all of their economic and societal and cultural actions as an implication of the heavens coming to earth. They, and this is one of the ways that they did it. They said, no one will be poor in our community. They just decided and they lived that out. No one will be sick alone in this community. No one will be outcast 
in this community as they made a kingdom within a kingdom. They decided no one would be disregarded because of their productivity or their ethnicity or their gender or their background. Everyone will be brought into an essential role of this community. And that's what the church did in the very beginning. And honestly, that's how the church has operated for a really long time, by the power of the Holy Spirit. I have a really long timeline to share now. Are you ready for it? There was this guy in the Czech Republic a long time ago named Jan Hus. He was a professor at this great seminary at the time. Prague was the center of the Christian world. But he began to preach this truth that the kingdom of God, the reality of the gospel, has physical implications. And you can go to Prague today, and you will see the most beautiful buildings, artworks, sidewalks. I mean, the little things that they made for the horses to be attached to back in the day could go into the Louvre. Like, it's prettier than anything you can see at the Getty. Because what happened is there was this huge movement, the Hussites, who believed that everything that they did was a declaration of the grace of God. And that birthed another movement called the Moravian Movement, which is a bunch of people who huddled into homes and marketplaces and barns, and they would just pray together because they believed in praying they could see more clearly the kingdom of God. And then these Moravians uh, in the middle of the Czech Republic began to go all over the world. Like, they got on boats, they got on chariots, they got on trailers, they went all over the world. For a hundred years, they traveled around telling people the good news about Jesus, but also serving the poor, the sick, they were bringing it about wholeness, until what happened is that movement sort of bled over and birthed another one called the abolitionist movement where a group of people like uh, Frederick Douglass, Hannah Moore, William Wilberforce, and a whole, whole host of thousands of other people said, if this is true about the gospel, then there should be no people in chains. And that birthed, after that, the same beliefs, the same beliefs that I've been proclaiming this morning that are proclaimed in the Bible, birthed the civil rights movement, where you had men and women all over the place saying, we will seek the freedom of the oppressed, right? That, that was a church movement, and there's plenty of others, but the, it's so integral to that that the anthem of the civil rights movement was not, hey, set us free, government. The anthem was the song, We Shall Overcome. And these are just some of the words of it, okay? Oh, deep in my heart, I do believe we shall overcome someday. We'll walk hand in hand, we'll walk hand in hand, we'll walk hand in hand someday. Oh, deep in my heart, I do believe we shall overcome someday. The Lord will see us through, the Lord will see us through, the Lord will see us through someday. And what's core to the belief of all Christians and for us as a church too, is that we believe that Jesus is not just a spiritual reality, but is a physical reality that we get to embody as his body or his soma. And it also, deep in that, is a belief that the death and the resurrection has secured that someday that they sang about in the 60s. In Revelation 21, verse 1 to 6, I just want to remind us of the end of the story that fills us with all confidence. It says this, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, this new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And what's he going to do? As being with them and their God, he's going to wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And then he, this is Jesus, said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. This is the good news that we proclaim and we embody in this place. Uh, Leslie Newbegin uh, said this about the gospel. He said, the gospel isn't just the illustration of an idea, meaning it doesn't just exist in our minds. It's the story of actions by which the human situation is irreversibly changed. Let's be a church that lives like Jesus has changed humanity's situation for eternity. Let's be a church that not only sees good news for us, but also lives good news for the world. And what I think we will see is we will see what Jesus started 2,000 years ago take place among us. We'll see jubilee in our homes. We're going to see jubilee on our streets. We'll see jubilee in our workplaces, everywhere that we find ourselves. The new heavens and the new earth descending on this place. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for this incredible good news. Thank you, Jesus. We pray that you receive so much glory and honor and thankfulness in this time. Thank you so much. Amen.